Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning, guys. It's great to see you. Thank you for getting up. Thank you for making your way here. I think you'll be really glad you did. Uh, just going to take a second um, to tell you about Phil. Um, he's become a great friend, somebody that uh, I just appreciate very much for his walk with God. And I, I know a little of his story. I don't know it all. We're going to learn it, some of it together. But uh, he has a lot to offer in this regard. And I'm really grateful to God that uh, he's willing to share it. And this is, a, this is an issue that um, just being a man makes you vulnerable. So, uh, and it's dangerous. It's a dangerous thing. So, um, your heart and your mind need to be as in tuned as they've ever been. And uh, I think you'll be I think you'll be helped today. So, just welcome. Would you welcome Phil to the... Come up here, buddy. Who'd have thought we could get 200 men to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to talk about sex? That's amazing. I was roaming around a Christian bookstore in Pensacola, Florida, and this song was playing softly in the background. I'd recently been promoted to major in the Marine Corps. Um, I'd been flying C-130s at the time, and they sent me down to Aircraft Maintenance Officers School down in Pensacola to, uh, to get me ready for my next assignment. I didn't know exactly what I was looking for in the bookstore that day. Um, but the words of this song caught my attention. You see, I was looking for a gift for a Christian girl I had met and fallen in love with, but there was a catch. I was married to someone else. When I heard the words, he wanted a life of adventure, so he left behind a wife and a child. They begged him to stay, but he threw it all all away, and he answered the call of the wild. I was convinced that this meant me. God was trying to get my attention, but I wasn't quite listening, yet. I came back to El Toro, California, where I was stationed, and uh, after the kids went to school, I tried to reconnect with my wife, but something was wrong, and she knew it. During our discussion, I ended up telling Cheryl about this relationship, and as you can imagine, she was absolutely devastated. Cheryl left me home that day and told me she didn't know if she was ever going to come back. That was the worst and the best day of my life. I spent the day in emotional turmoil. I felt like I was being torn in two. The feelings for this girl in Florida were still very real, but the possibility of losing my wife and three kids was overwhelming. I cried for hours. I called a chaplain on the base that I had connected with and uh, confessed that to him. I also called a good friend and told him about that, and out of that, that call to him, my friend, God started to bring some things about my past up and to put this thing into perspective. 
Cheryl did come home that day, but she was not the same woman. She had spent the day crying alone, crying out to God and writing her thoughts to get some kind of clarity in the fog of confusion I had just created. She told me she had decided to stay, but on three conditions. I had to say goodbye to the girl. Seems obvious. I had to go to counseling with her, and I had to go to Celebrate Recovery. And Celebrate Recovery had just started there at Saddleback Community Church. How did I end up in this terrible place? Well, I need to go back and give you some history. And just to be honest with you, I can't give you the whole history. I don't have time. There's a whole lot more that I could say that I will be able to say this morning. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, to start with, my dad and mom were missionaries in Kashmir, India, North India. They had homeschooled my older brother and sister. Uh, but when it came time to put me in school, they put all three of us in boarding school 2,000 miles away. I felt abandoned there, but that's another story. I was four years old. I went to that school till I was 10, seeing my parents only twice a year. When we came to the States, my dad got a job at a uh, fairly large uh, Christian school. He was teaching Bible there. We rented a house right across the street. And it was in that house that I was introduced to pornography. I found a Playboy centerfold tucked under a corner of the carpet in my bedroom. In seventh grade, just a couple of years later, just about the time a boy starts to get interested in girls, an older male exchange student sexually abused me. Around this time also, I went on a fishing trip with an older friend of my dad's who sexually abused me. These were critical times in my sexual development, and they have deeply scarred me. That same year, I made a decision to follow Jesus at Vacation Bible School. I remember being aware that I was a sinner and that I needed a Savior. These were critical... Um, excuse me. The verse that really stood out to me uh, in that thing was Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My conversion was partly a cry to God to help me make sense of the life I had known so far. Whether it was an attempt to medicate the pain or just innocent experimentation, I started also using marijuana as a young teenager. This put me in the wrong crowd, and I started dating a sexually active girl. When it came time to do it, I couldn't. I was so ashamed and wondered what was wrong with me. So I turned to porn and masturbation to learn what all young pornographers... I, I turned to porn and masturbation. I learned what all young pornographers learn. The pictures never rejected me. I didn't feel ashamed by not being able to perform. I felt like they validated my manhood in some way, at least the girls in the pictures. At least with the girls in the pictures, I felt more like I thought a man should feel sexually. It also gave me a feeling that can best be described as connection with another person, though at the time I didn't fully realize it was really only an illusion of connection. What started out as a normal adolescent fascination would end up growing into a habit which would turn into an obsession. After high school, I enlisted in the Marine Corps and worked on F-4 Phantoms for four years. I carried my habits of marijuana and porn with me into the Corps. I met a girl in Florida who I partied with and really liked a lot, but she soon moved away. Uh, I thought if I ever got married, it would have to be to a good Christian girl. So I started to go to church to meet girls, even though I was still smoking dope and experimenting with other drugs every weekend. 
The girlfriend who moved away became a Christian and wrote me a long letter about her conversion and how excited she was to know the Lord. She ended up, she ended the letter with a warning to me to quit doing drugs or it would likely kill me. This would be a turning point in my life. On my way to my next duty station, I went to church with my brother in Seattle and through the message and what God was already doing in my life, I decided I needed to follow Jesus more closely and I recommitted my life to him. When I got to my new duty station, I met some Marines who were involved in a, the Christian service organization. They used the Navigator study materials and scripture memory program and I soon became a lover of the word of God. It looked like I was finally going to be able to put my past habits of using drugs and porn behind me. I did quit using drugs, stopped smoking, and started a lifelong love of running, but I couldn't seem to break the habit of using porn and masturbation. I would be able to stay away from it for a few weeks, and then I would feel that itch that just had to be scratched again. I found myself repeating a cycle of indulging in porn, then feeling tremendous shame then trying my best to repent, then experiencing some freedom, and then I'd scratch that old itch again and right back into the shame cycle. In an attempt to break this cycle, I threw myself into the ministry of the CSO. I started leading Bible studies, speaking at rallies, memorizing more scripture, spending half days in prayer, tried fasting for up to three days at a time, and witnessing at every opportunity, but still struggled with letting go of porn. I prayed repeatedly that God would take this from me, but he didn't. I finally came to the conclusion that I would always have this weakness, and that maybe this was like Paul's thorn in the flesh, that God would somehow use it to keep me dependent on him. I was wrong, but I had no idea how to kick the habit, and my friends didn't know how to help me either. I got out of the Marine Corps in Yuma, Arizona, started college at Arizona Western, and it was there that I met and fell madly in love with my wife, Cheryl. We dated for three years, got married uh, after I transferred up to the University of Arizona. And soon after we married, we had our first of three kids. Life got a lot harder. I don't remember struggling a lot with porn in college, but I do remember trying to bring it into my marriage. That's a bad idea. All right, fast forward 10 years. After college, I re-entered the Marine Corps as an officer and started to fly helicopters. I had to go overseas on Navy ships for six months at a time. They say there's no dry eye on the ship. I mean, there's no, uh, there are no tears on the ship. Excuse me, got my analogy wrong. Um, all the tears are on the shore. The men have already left long before they left. Uh, it was easy to disconnect. Uh, my time on this ship was a new development in the porn problem, however. I started leading a double life. I led a Bible study on the ship with a friend of mine on the, on the surface was living a healthy Christian life. But in secret, I would regularly find porn in the bathrooms and masturbate. The old shame cycle returned, but then it started to escalate. When we'd pull into a port, I started drinking and would soon separate myself from the guys I knew and would start chasing women in the bars. It got so bad that one time in Hong Kong, I found myself in some girl's apartment at one in the morning and had to be back on the ship at two. I was in desperate need of a solution, though I never contemplated it seriously. Death seemed like the only way out. Alcohol became an integral part of my habit patterns. Not only did I use it as a social lubricant, 
I also used it to enable and justify my behavior. Well, fast forward another 10 years, back to the story I started with. Remember, I had to say goodbye to the girl, go to counseling, and go to celebrate recovery. Cheryl and I did go to counseling, and it was there that I got a sobering view of what I had been doing to my wife all along. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I was clueless of how I was hurting her. At one point, I was feeling particularly good about my recovery and couldn't understand why it was taking her so long to get over it. The counselor pulled me up short by saying, you just hit your wife in the face with an ax and you want her to get over it? I later found this paragraph in a book titled Pure Desire that describes in vivid detail what we were going through. When he becomes honest for the first time in years, he feels like a load has been lifted, but as the wife immediately feels a heavy load has been dropped on her. His reality, I'm gonna contrast his reality and her reality. His reality, I'm becoming a man of integrity, her reality, I've been betrayed. His reality, I've never loved her more. Her reality, I've never felt less loved or worthy. His reality, I'm beginning to see how much I value my marriage, and these are all true of me, by the way. Her reality, I've never realized until now how little the marriage meant to him. His reality, finally I'm an honest man. Her reality, how could he live a lie like this? His reality, I understand that healing process takes sometimes three to five years, but I'm pretty sure I can complete that freedom in a couple of years. Her reality, five years seems like a lifetime to deal with this pain. I learned also that the illusion of intimacy from porn was robbing me of genuine intimacy with the one closest to me, Cheryl. Dallas Willard nailed it when he wrote, intimacy is the mutual mingling of souls who are taking into each other, taking each other into themselves to ever increasing depths. The truly erratic is the mingling of souls. Because we are free beings, intimacy can, cannot be passive or forced, and because we are extremely finite, it must be exclusive. This is the metaphysical and spiritual reality that underlines the bitter violation of self experienced by the betrayed mate. It also makes clear the scarred and shallow condition of those who betray. <clears throat> I did say goodbye to the girl, but it wasn't easy for me at the time, and the fact that it wasn't easy for me also really hurt my wife. When I went back to work the next week, Cheryl would crawl into her closet, no kidding, sit in the dark and cry for hours. She hid her pain from the kids and me, but not from God. Cheryl wrote a lot of poems during those dark days. And when I eventually got to read them, I became a broken man. I considered reading to you a poem, but I didn't think I could get through it. God used Cheryl's words more than his own words to get through to me at a deeper level. During our reconciliation, Cheryl couldn't hear me because my words had become meaningless to her. I found the only way I could communicate was through song. The Lord gave me several songs that Cheryl could listen to over and over and through them hear the messages I was trying to convey. This small thing was a big help to us. Now, going to celebrate recovery was a scary proposition. 
I was supposed to go to the renewal from sexual addiction group. I was just sure that the room was be full of a bunch of weird losers and maybe in trench coats. And certainly not people I could relate to. What I discovered was a room full of guys just like you. After I introduced myself and gave them a couple lines of why I was there, the leader looked straight at me and said, Welcome, Phil. You're in the right place. And I was introduced to a sweet fellowship of grace that I had never in almost 40 years of church experienced. My life went from black and white to technicolor. <clears throat> About this time, I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. As you guys know, if you know me, I love reading. The Lord used his words to teach me something really important. Hear me, please. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. It, in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. This can happen even in the midst of a pious community. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until sin is openly admitted. In Celebrate Recovery, I learned that confessing my sin out loud to a group of men who were painfully aware of their own sin and could accept me in my brokenness was one of the keys to unlocking the bondage I was in. The beauty of a clear conscience cannot be overstated. It is one of the most valuable gifts from the Father through the Son. I learned to hold on to it like a personal flirtation device in troubled waters. I learned this and learned it well, that this Christian life cannot be walked alone, especially in the morass of sexual sin. When we moved to Texas, I tried to stay sexually sober by just sharing my life with a few guys in our prayer group by doing that, but I soon found out, I soon went back to some of my old habits. I thought that maybe I'd done enough recovery work to stay sexually sober. Interesting, when I was looking back at this, I was only thinking about this getting better for about six months. <clears throat> I soon found out that I hadn't. I didn't take into account the need for continual repentance and renewal and how long this really might take. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, another one of my, the books I love, um, thoughts of an, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, shed some penetrating light on this. I had much of my own sin to both claim and shed at the throne of grace. One of the complexities of repenting from sexual sin is that its consequence is double directional, casting a shadow both on our past and our future. It affects the way we remember and rationalize and the way we live. I somehow expected that the habits that I had so carefully constructed over 30 years were somehow going to vanish in a few months. I had learned about confession, recovery meetings, and some te new techniques for staying sober, like bouncing the eyes and setting various boundaries, all of which are immensely helpful, but I hadn't dealt with my drinking, and I hadn't fully perceived the depth and deceitfulness of my sin. Again, Rosaria has some words for you and me. What good Christians don't realize is that sexual sin is not recreational sin gone overboard. Sexual sin is predatory. It won't be healed by redeeming the context or the gender. Sexual sin must simply be killed. 
What is left of your sexuality after this annihilation is up to God, but healing to the sexual sinner is death. Nothing more, nothing less. I told my audience that I think too many young Christian fornicators plan that marriage will redeem their sin. Too many young Christian masturbators plan that marriage will redeem their patterns. Too many young Christian internet pornographers think that having a legitimate having legitimate sex will take away the desire to have illicit sex. They're wrong. Marriage does not redeem sin. Only Jesus himself can do that. Unless I dealt truthfully and thoroughly with the sinful aspects of my sexuality and quit drinking, I wasn't going to get better. Sin is rebellion against a holy God. Unless I saw my sin that way, I would, ta- I would not take it as seriously as I should. I quit drinking, haven't had a drink for 17 years, and truthfully, I haven't missed it because when I think about it, I think of the damage I did to my family through that. Paul wrote, whoever sins sexually sins against their own body, and I always wondered what that looked like. Well, here it is. What I experienced was that sexual sin robbed me of a vital relationship with God. It robbed me of a romantic relationship with my wife. It almost cost me my marriage. When I was trying hard to stay sexually sober, I became a tyrant to myself, which spilled out especially on my wife and kids. I'm still paying the price for that today. I pushed people away. I became an extreme perfectionist. I became an angry man, ready to blow up at a moment's notice. It clouded my vision of where God was involved and where he wanted to be involved in my life. It robbed me of the joy of the Lord, and worst of all, it filled my life with shame instead of grace. In addition to recognizing sexual sin for what it is, my relationship with God was becoming systematically revived. Up until a few years ago, I had struggled a lot with the idea that God loves me. Perhaps it goes back to the young boy feeling abandoned by his father, but I can't really blame God for that, though I did for a while. He has promised to work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I know that's true. I am living proof. To help me absorb that God loves me and helped me deal with resentments, I memorized Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This has had a double effect in my life. First, I focused on the fact, on the phrase, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, and meditated on that. And God used that in my life. I let it sink in. Secondly, God's word has a cleansing effect on the mind. You see, since I had been hooked on porn, I had a gallery of pictures and movies in my memory that needed to be erased. Sometimes when I wake up at night with a lustful thought, I quote these verses to myself to reorient my thinking. I also quote Psalm 23, and I usually fall right back asleep in peace. This is how I apply that thought, that thing, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I've learned that I can't just say no to wrongful images and bad thoughts. I have to actively replace them. These verses help me do that. In our current study of the divine conspiracy, Dallas Willard offers a helpful translation of a verse that used to baffle me and was misunderstood. Speaking of Matthew 5.28, he writes, 
He, Jesus, says simply that those who look upon a woman for the purpose of lusting for her, using her visual presence as a means of savoring the fantasized act, has thereby committed adultery with her in his heart. This has helped reorient me because I now, now I can remind myself that just because I recognize a woman is beautiful, it does not mean that I'm currently lusting. But if I take that a step farther, I am, and that is sin. Another huge help in my daily walk with the Lord is that he has declared me a new creation in Christ. He has given me a new heart, and that truly desires to follow him. Yes, I can still choose his, against his will, but because of the work of Jesus in my heart, I now choose to follow him in his will instead of my own. These days when I'm tempted, I often catch myself saying something like, I'm not that man anymore, or there's no life there. When once I was filled with shame and despair, now I am filled with grace and hope. To wrap it up, there are several lessons I've learned that I want to emphasize, and please remember that if I use the word you, I'm including myself. I still do or have done all these things. First, we can't do this alone. We need each other. We need a small group of men who are mutually vulnerable and accountable to each other. I love Pastor Pete's definition of accountability, submitting the quality of her life to the judgment of others. Uh, Another one, no sexual sin is done in isolation. It always hurts someone, even if that someone is you. And by the way, there's nothing right about that. Because I used to talk to guys who'd say, well, I'm only hurt myself. And I have to say, what's good about that? You're hurting yourself. We all need to seek a deep, true, and continual repentance. Stuff still comes up. The confession of sin is critical. Choose one guy, maybe a counselor or a pastor or someone who has walked this road before you to share your whole past with. Remember the quote from Bonhoeffer, in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. I'd say start reading books on this subject. There are a lot of really good ones out there. Make your home a safe place for you to be, not just your kids. This includes the internet and television. Don't subscribe to movie channels that have programming, programming that would trigger you. Put your computer in a public place so you can't sneak off. Put a password on it that only your wife knows. Subscribe to an internet filter service like Covenant Eyes or X3 Watch. I had to make sure that my wife even got rid of the Victoria's Secrets catalog before I saw it. And she's a great ally. Get rid of your porn stash if you have one. Your wife is not your enemy. Enlist her help. Let her check your phone messages. Give her full access to your internet search history. And don't use private browsing. Make it your goal that there will be no secrets between you and your wife when it comes to where your eyes and hands and heart have been. This will take some time, trust me. You may enlist the help of a counselor in this area. Make a list of boundaries and check them with your accountability partners. This includes what you will not do, what you should not do, and what you will do to stay sober. In the end, techniques will not change your heart. You may have some significant healing that needs to take place. Seek it out. I went to a 12-week Making Peace With Your Past workshop to help me heal from abandonment and abuse. I also got counseling to learn how to deal with hurts and resentments. God will change your heart as you submit to him and get his word, get into his word for daily cleansing. Memorize some verses that speak directly to your need. 
2 Peter uh, 2.11 is a good one for me. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. John Piper has written, We preferred the gods of money, sex, and power to God himself. He was not our treasure, they were. If you are not yet trusting Jesus as your treasure, they still are. I have found that as I treasured Jesus and put him first in my life, the allure of pornography becomes insignificant in comparison. This is my hope and prayer for you, too. Thanks so much for letting me share my story with you. All right, guys. Real quick, before you dismiss, I want to say something, then Dave will give you a couple of instructions. I took a lot of notes. Uh, There's a number of things that stood out to me, I'm sure, to you too. But I jotted down two thoughts. One is, every single one of us are on this continuum somewhere. Agreed? You're either just beginning, it's just the door's just beginning to open, or that door's been wide open, and you're on the other end. Uh, Somewhere on there, but here's the deal. The end is the same for everybody. We may be on a different place in the continuum, but the end is the same for everybody. It's not a great place. You wouldn't shock one person at the table you're going to be sitting at if you told them that in the last 12 months you have intentionally sought something for sexual stimulation of some sort, mental or physical. You wouldn't shock one person in this room. If that sin stays secret, you will not win. That's how destructive sin is. It is not personally, individually won. It's not defeatable that way. If you continue to tell yourself that, you're losing. You're losing. I don't know if today's the day you got to tell someone. I don't know if this is your big day or not. But it better come. All I was hoping today was that that idea would get into your minds and that God would not let us rest even though we know it lies before us, if we open that door, if we tell someone. You walk through that door, you find something on the other side, some joy you didn't know existed. And so our prayer, as a staff, as a leadership team in this church, is for you to feel safe opening that door, whatever it be. So, uh, whatever that means to you, just praying to God that it 
causes some action in your life. Okay, so we're going to go to our tables and we're going to chat and it's going to get real chitty chatty and it's going to lose a lot. It's potentially going to lose a lot of it's just going to become a bunch of could easily become a bunch of guys talking about a subject. Don't let that happen. Somebody at that table, don't let that happen. 